Welcome to the Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. Well, welcome to Keys of the Kingdom. I'm Brother Gregory, and uh, we're going to talk about the Kingdom of God. And uh, we had a show this morning, and I went and talked about a number of things. Uh, there's so many false information out there that it's, it's just staggering where to begin. And, uh, and what what is the more important things that we need to realize are false? And then what is the truth that should replace those false ideas or false perceptions of reality around us? It's it's very easy to find lies all over the place and deception all over the place and people that are, you know, have their agendas, salesmen, uh, politicians. Nowadays, the media, you can't even trust the media. Not that it was all that trustworthy before. I mean, you can go back to the ancient Rome and that they were complaining about the media lying. <laughs> you can go to Thomas Jefferson who said that uh, if you don't read the paper, you're poorly informed. If you do read the paper, you're misinformed. <laughs> so, <laughs> so how do you get informed? How do you find out what's true and what's not true? And, uh, you know, we're, we're, constantly seeking the truth we don't want to say that we have a corner on the market uh, that we're the only ones who have the truth but uh, i've spent uh, over half a century well over half a century now trying to find out the truth and i've read countless people that thought they knew the truth and countless people who thought that they were right and i find conflict in these people that somebody's got to be wrong it's like the 40,000 different denominations of christianity most of which disagree with each other, sometimes on very fundamental points. Which one is right? Which one is correct? They can't all be correct. It's not like uh, in the modern, you know, there is no wrong answer. Uh, there is wrong answers. There are things that are not true. And people are presenting them as if they're the truth. So anyway, we're going to just explore some of these things that people think that are the truth. And are not the truth. And that's what we're always doing. Seeking the kingdom of God. Which is the truth. That's that's what Jesus was saying. When they tried to try him in a Roman court. Before Pontius Pilate. That he was one who came to profess the truth. And Pontius Pilate said. What is the truth? Because that's that's an age old question. What is the truth? And what is the lie? So a lot of times we talk about what the lie is. We show the contradictions. And uh, actually this morning when we were talking about Paul and uh, in some of his writings, I, I came across the fact that we started a section in, in our pages on Paul and Romans and etc. that uh, talk about, you know, Paul made false claims that are contradicting Christ. So the question is, do they really contradict Christ? Because I see people reading Paul, interpreting Paul, based on what they think Paul is saying, knowing that Paul was going to talk to us about things hard to understand, according to Peter. And when you read, Paul said this, Paul said that, Paul seems to contradict Paul. 
Yet whole religions, whole denominations are based on some of these interpretations of Paul that are contradicting Paul. The people say they con- he contradicts Christ. Paul contradicts Paul if you take what he's saying a certain way. And of course, Christ talked in metaphors. Paul did not use metaphors quite as often as Christ talked. He didn't use the parables anyway. He did use metaphors. I mean, the very term idolatry has become a metaphor that actually means those systems. You know, idolatry, that has something to do with religion, right? Well, religion has something to do with what you think about God. It has something to do with it. But the actual word religion, that we have the word religion today, and people say religion means to bind, things bound, religiere, from the word re meaning things, and legiere meaning to bind. Well, lex legis is the word to bind, but if you put it in ablative case or other cases in the Latin, uh, you will get a slightly different meaning, such as libera res publica. Libera means free. Res means things. Publica means public. So, does, is les, res publica about free things given by the public? <laughs> well, I guess you could think that, but that's not what it means. Libera res publica is the Latin idiom where we get the word res publica, which is the shortened form of libera res publica, and libera res publica means free from things public. Means you're not controlled by the public. By politics. You don't have rulers over you. When they, they threw out the Tarquinian kings out of Rome, they established a republic because they believed in the libera res publica, being free from things public. They knew they were still going to have to have money to run the government and provide an army and uh, take care of the needy of society. All the functions that we commonly put on government. But if you're not free from things public, the government gets to force you to contribute to the needy, to the army, to whatever. Well, they just had a guy doing that. It was the Tarquinian kings and they just threw him out. They revolted against the king who was revolting himself and they threw the king out. And they set up a republic. Did they set up another government that could exercise authority one over the other and force the contributions of the people? No, they set up a republic where the people were free from things public. But they still had to take care of these things. They still could be attacked. So they had an army. But it wasn't a professional army. It was a militia. In order to have the militia, you were going to have to be organized. You had to be organized in advance. You just can't have... 10,000 Romans living all over the countryside and get attacked. And I said, okay, guys, let's organize and fight off these invaders who are already organized and coming down upon us with everything they got. (laughs) Well, no, no, they had to be organized already. So they organized in the hearths. And basically, it was the tens, hundreds, and thousands. They knew all about Israel. Because Israel was a republic. The people were, there were no taxes in Israel. There was tithings. But you got to choose who you were going to tie to, when you were going to tie to them, for the most part. There were certain feasts that you were expected to tie, at least by those feasts, to mark the time. 
And there was a head tax, which equivalent to about a half a dime in silver. And that was a half a dime in silver per family. But other than that, that was just kind of your ante up saying, we're in. You pretty much got to decide. And there was, there was statutes concerning how to decide. But the statutes were simply explanations of the law that was in the Ten Commandments. And the, and the basic laws, you know, like Moses said, love thy neighbor as thyself. So I guess that's the law from Moses. So they had to do this some way, and so they set up this tens, hundreds, and thousands to organize themselves. They had organized themselves before they left Egypt in the tens, hundreds, and thousands. Jethro was not suggesting that they organize in the tens, hundreds, and thousands. He was talking about the judicial system. Because everybody was bringing everything to Moses to decide. And it was wearing Moses out. And he says, no, no, why don't you just do it to the tens, hundreds, and thousands? They already knew about that. The Ishmaelites were organized that way. People have been organized. It was the, the most common form of self-government throughout the history of mankind. Anybody who knows history knows that. But most people don't know history because they don't want you to know that. But that's what uh, that's what they were already organized in. And so he, now he's saying, do the same with your courts. So if they can't settle it with this congregation of ten families, where the elders, we see this with Boaz, has a legal problem. And they go to the elders, which would be ten elders in a family. In a congregation, ten, ten elders being the heads of families, ten heads of families. And they sit down and they try the matter as to what is fact and law. They get to decide what is fact and law. And they decide that day. Now, if it involved people from two congregations, they would have five elders from one side, five elders from the other side. And they would sit down and decide what is fact and law. And they are governed to do that because if the five from one group is not fair with the five from the other group, if they're prejudiced in their judgment, they will divide the nation. And if they're divided, they're vulnerable to, you know, the marauders and crooks and thieves. It, it'll create bad blood. They have to be fair or they will create bad blood between them. And they need to come together because life is rough. There can be famines, fires. Robbers, thieves, invading armies. We, we have to be careful that we walk in righteousness. So they would decide the case. And if, if, if the guy felt like he still didn't get a fair trial, he could appeal it upwards to the tens, hundreds, and thousands. And eventually it might even come before Moses. Or what Moses set up, which was the Sanhedrin. And they might decide, but they're not... They're not bringing cases against the people. They're deciding whether or not the case was fair, just, right. And if they don't decide it justly and fairly, the people are going to know and the people are going to say, I don't want to have anything to do with those guys. These tens, hundreds, and thousands, you're not taking it up to the next congregation, but you're taking it up through a network of ministers. But these are not ministers who exercise authority. These are ministers who... Rightly divide bread from house to house. Rightly take care of the needy of society. Rightly distribute the wealth or the, you know, the supplies. If there's an army and a military uh, attacking you, 
you're going to want to make sure that the troops are well supplied. Where's the money come from? Where's the food come from that feeds the troops? It comes from the tens, hundreds, and thousands. How does it get there? Through the network of tens, hundreds, and thousands. And they make sure that the congregations are supplied. Let's put it this way. The platoons, the fighting men that come from each family are supplied. This is the same thing that Abraham was doing with his altars. This is how it worked. And this is how it should work today. But it doesn't work that way today. It works today like Herod did it. Like Augustus Caesar did it. Like Rome did it. It's not like Christ did it. It's not like the early church did it. And that's the truth. So, this is not new that we've gone back to this way where men exercise authority and force the contributions of the people. When Israel abandoned God and refused to listen to the wisdom of God, they, they, they had rejected God. That's what it says. They, Samuel said to God, they want to have a king. And, and God said, give them the king, Samuel. Tell them what's going to happen. But know this, they haven't rejected you, Samuel. They've rejected me. Because they want to have a king, a prime minister, a president, a, a chief executive officer, an imperator. You know, a commander-in-chief. That's what imperator means. A commander-in-chief. To fight their battles for them. They don't want to do it themselves through the militia. Through a network of people who care about one another. They want to, they want to hire somebody to be their king and do it. And so, one of the first things that Saul did when he became king was he forced an offering of the people to supply his armor. He forced a sacrifice of the people to fund his military because he could see the Philistines coming. So he had to prepare for that. He was condemned by Samuel for doing that. He said, Samuel said, you've condemned yourself because you've done this foolish thing of forcing the sacrifice of the people. This is, this is basic fundamental stuff of Judaism. All Jews, all people claiming to be Jews following Moses, Abraham, should know. No, you shouldn't be doing it that way. But they often do. And not, and not in Yahoo. <laughs> uh, he's, he's set up like that. And whoever Golda Meir used to be back when I was really studying Israel closely and seeing how they were organized, it was Golda Meir. And, and Golda Meir, she had a lot of things to say about a lot of things. <laughs> <laughs> you know that that was uh you know she uh, had these ideas of what what to trust and what not to trust i just had a quote that i was reading of golda meir's i can't remember what it was but she made a lot of mistakes and uh, actually uh moshe dayan was much better leader than golda meir he ended all the strife between the Muslims and uh, and uh, the people who lived in Palestine, the Palestinians and the Jews. The riot stopped under his authority because he said there is no second class citizens. If you're a citizen of Israel, you you can go where you want. They they took the heavy hand off of 
the backs of the people and they began to make peace. Now, he didn't end all hatred. He didn't end all racism. He doesn't end all... But he ended the violence in the street. And he made friends and peace with them. A great general, but a great peacemaker. Now, he wasn't 100% right. I mean, he had a couple wives and not uh, picking on him for that. I don't know how he treated him or anything, but uh, he was an Old Testament guy. To be expected amongst Jews. But he was closer to the kingdom than Golda Meir. And Golda Meir, a lot of vengeance in her way of approaching things. And uh, she raised the bar of violence in her country. Was not a good plan, to say the least. But anyway, we go back and forth in these things. And now we have Democrats and Republicans and Libertarians in America. And they're fighting over what? Power. Because what was it that the people did under Samuels? They create offices of power. That's what the king was. He was an office of power. A chief executive officer. Who was going to fight their battles as commander in chief. I mean that's what the emperor of Rome... Imperator, like I said, means commander-in-chief. You look it up in Collins Latin Dictionary, it translates right out to commander-in-chief. That's his, that's his fact. That's what it means. And so, they elected him to be the imperator, the commander-in-chief of their army. But he didn't have the power to impose taxes. He, he assumed that power, and he took that power, and he got away with that. But it was called foolish by Samuel. And it should have never been. And if you went back and read Deuteronomy 17, around 1716, and the warnings there, that what you were, what the Bible tells you to write in a constitution, you would know, hey, we don't give them the power to tax us. We still support the government with free will offerings. Now today, now you say that, and people say, well, that's crazy. Nobody would give any money. Well, it's actually a little too late for that. Because you're all in debt. The money you give the government doesn't run the government. It pays the interest on the debt. Because you've been doing a lot of stuff wrong for a long, long time. (laughs) Somebody said, this old COVID thing is threatening our freedom. I said, your your freedom was threatened back in 1913. This is not new. You're just feeling the other boot dropping. That's all. (laughs) Because you've been... Not thinking righteously. You've been thinking in a wrong way. In a false way. A way that does not lead to freedom. But turns the people into perfect savages. And brings once more monarchs and kings and tyrants and despots. That's where you've been going. So, seeking the kingdom of God and seeking his righteousness is seeking that alternative system. Which is what Abraham was doing when he left Well, he wasn't really doing it when he left Ur, but he was doing it after he left Haran. You have to realize that Abraham left Haran a number of times. He was constantly going out numerous times and trying to make it outside of Haran. What he was doing when he left Haran and and his the the house, his nativity, his family, was he saying, I don't want to inherit the rule of Haran. Let Nahor do that. I'm going to go out and follow this other way. It evidently studied the other ways and the ancient ways and kind of understood it. And he was nine generations after Noah. And so he had a certain knowledge of this. And he was going out trying to figure out how should we really do this. And he was setting up these altars that were free will altars. You you donate. And they, they were living altars. They weren't just dead stone. 
And he had organized the people so that they were able, you know, when an army came in and took over their country and took over the city-states that were around about them, that they allowed to be about them. They were very tolerant of these other city-states. They were very patient with some of the nonsense that went on in those city-states. They just avoided them. They were against that. And and people in the city-states, often when they saw the corruption getting so bad, they might have an ecclesia calling out. And if they couldn't get enough people to come out, they might have come out and went and joined Abraham. <laughs> or some of these other communities all over the desert, all over the countryside, that were like Abraham. And they began to build these altars instead of these social welfare systems that you would see in places like Sodom and Gomorrah. Because those those systems of social welfare by force, by instituting force and violence, by forcing the contributions of the people, degenerates the people. And then before you know it, you see all kinds of perversions in society. That's where, you know, see, if you want to get rid of the perversions, but keep socialism, not going to work. It's not going to happen. You you need to repent and think differently and realize that one thing leads to another. It doesn't always happen real fast, but it happens. And uh, so you need to go a different way. And that's what they were doing with, you know, this repentance they were saying, we're going to go this different way. And like I was saying this morning, John the Baptist, I just had somebody here, I was talking to him, John the Baptist. The whole thing with John the Baptist wasn't that you all had to get dunked in water. And then I say some sort of magic words and suddenly that changes you and you're saved. That isn't what Christianity baptism was about either. It was about going a different way. Instead of the way of forced offerings, at the expense of your neighbor, they were going free will offerings. And I, I took a little while to learn. Through Christ's ministry, people were, you know, John the Baptist had broken the ice on us, but Jesus was making it really happen. And one of these days, it'll start happening in our network. But it's not really our network, it's Christ's network. And I, I believe that he's working on this with other people and they're beginning to wake up. But you have to awaken. Being awoke keeps you from being awakened. <laughs> So you don't want to be woke. You want to be awakened. So anyway, what we were going to talk about, and I said I'd get, get to this. We, we've had it on the, the notes to go through a show concerning these things. And we talked this morning about this book, What Did the Cross Accomplish? By uh, N.T. Wright and Simon Gathercola and uh, Robert Stewart. And... Uh, it didn't accomplish what they think it accomplished. And it's sort of a way they're right. I mean, the verbiage of what they say is right. But like most lies, they're leaving out some important aspects of what Christ accomplished. He took the kingdom away from the Pharisees who had misconstrued and misused and mistaught the kingdom of Moses, of God, of the prophets, which was a government that was operating by faith, hope, and charity. Now, they strayed from that, and we know it was foolish when they strayed from that, but they still had the kingdom. They they did not create the constitution they were supposed to create that would keep, you know, you know it, 
all five planks of that Constitution should be incorporated in the Constitution of the United States. Only one is in that Constitution, and they don't pay any attention to that one anymore. They, they violate it all the time. And they have a right to violate it, but they will not escape the consequences of that violation. And that's what we were going to talk about is consequences. And I was going to use Jordan Peterson's new book, Beyond Order, 12 Rules for Life. But this is the second one, 12 More Rules for Life. They already had the other one. We did a show on that, and you probably find it somewhere in our archives. But he's going to be talking about order and the consequences, because that's what happens is you, you, you create these new world orders, but there's consequences of those new world orders. And too much order is a bad thing, because as I was talking this morning, chaos and order are not opposing forces. They're mutually positive forces. I mean, it's like a child. You know, my granddaughter's room. She'll probably kill me if she finds out I mention her room. Her room is almost always a mess. She's very bright, very smart, very creative, and but she doesn't straighten up her room very much. She does from time to time, but it doesn't take long and it's a mess again. <laughs> so, it's chaos. But out of that chaos comes order. I mean, she is more talented and artistic than you know, a lot of the other members. Certainly more than I am as far as artisticness is concerned. So that's that's one of her talents, and unfortunately, a part of that is the chaos because she she will make things really pretty and beautiful, but she starts with chaos. But out of that chaos, she brings order. But if you didn't have chaos to begin with, you can't have the achievement, the flow of bringing order to it. Now, good and evil is not the same as chaos and order. Light and darkness is a better metaphor for good and evil. It shows more of the characteristic. Evil is the absence of good. Now, why is there an absence of good? Is it because nobody's shined a light in your heart in a particular area to lighten it up and make it good? I mean, we cannot perfect ourselves. It's God who perfects us. His light comes into us. And he, his light perfects us, lightens us, awakens us. And so, we, like the Israelites and citizens of Judea at the time of Jesus Christ, were sitting in darkness. We are sitting in darkness today. We have implemented a system of social welfare, much like Herod, much like Augustus Caesar. We have an article, Rome. And you'd be surprised how much Rome was like what we've been doing. The history of Rome is the history of America. Not in 100% detail, but certainly in principle. And we are following the way of Rome. And of course, Rome declined and fell in chaos. It went from order to chaos. It had to actually... The more order it had, the more likely it was going to produce chaos. Not because order is bad, but the way in which they established order was bad. I mean, isn't it a good idea to take care of the needy? They were taking care of the needy with their free bread. But they were providing the free bread by exercising authority. Not by charity. 
Originally, they did it by charity in Rome, and that's when they rose to greatness. Originally, we did it in America, and that's why we rose to greatness. It was the same networks of charity and community that was able to end slavery in America. Those networks of charity and community were much stronger in the North. Now, I will admit that, you know, armies marched in. (laughs) You know, the first military incursion into the South was an all-volunteer army. There was only one federal officer with the whole military operation. Everything else was a voluntary army. Some of the people were being paid, and certainly many of them were being financed by northern merchants who were sending these people down to collect payments of debts that the south, southern merchants, own northern merchants. And were trying to pay in paper money. Ridiculous. Everybody knows paper money is not worth anything. has to be backed by gold and silver. Well, we used to know that. We don't know that anymore. <laughs> we think that paper money actually has value. It's part of our delusion. But uh, it is what we use. Somebody was just asking, you know, what do we do? Do we get rid of our money? Do we, you know, because they can see the hyperinflation's coming and all that kind of stuff. Well, you know, individually what you should do, the Holy Spirit will tell you. But you got to start listening to the Holy Spirit. You got to repent. You have to think differently. And then the Holy Spirit can come in and bring light where there is darkness and show you how to operate. But if you don't want to sit down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands like Christ commanded, if you don't want to take care of one another through faith, hope, and charity, if you don't want to love your neighbor as yourself, if you want to blame everything on some political organization like Biden or the Democrats, if you think Trump is your salvation on this earth, then you're probably not going to get it you're probably not going to see what really works, what really will set you free. But if you're willing to look deeper into the problem, which is in you, you will find the answer. But light will bring order where there is darkness. If you try to bring order by force, and we talked about that this morning, you know, where, you know, socialism, what was it? The threat comes from men of good intentions and goodwill, they want to take care of the needy of society, they want to make things better for the world, who wish to reform us. Impatient with the slowness of persuasion. You know, what was it Moses supposed to do? He was supposed to speak to the rock. But he exercised authority. Speak to the rock. What what was that all about? Again, those are metaphors. But he struck it. Use force. And because he did that foolish thing, using force to provide the flow, it was going to be that he was never going to enter into the promised land. It's the same for you. He's going to use force. And that's what it is. The people are impatient with the slowness of persuasion. I could get impatient with the slowness of persuasion. We were just talking about people in Florida who were part of the network, and now we don't hear from them anymore. They kind of disappeared. I've seen this over and over again. And like, why? You didn't persevere until the end. You didn't strive. Now, hopefully they'll come back. We welcome with open arms. We greet them with a holy kiss. (laughs) But it's up to you to persevere. I can't, I can't use force. That's not, that's not the kingdom way. 
it's it, you want your freedom you have to take back your responsibility you have to find your own motivation to seek the righteousness of God that is that is part of the program then the holy spirit can enter in and bless you and put the full armor of God upon you but you have to do it and you don't do it because other people do it or because a lot of other people do it you do it because you know that's the right thing to do we're going to have a meeting in Florida. Join the network. Find out. Go to the meeting. Meet meet people. Paul will be there. Other people will be there. But you better do it quick because I'm not sure. I think the meeting is tomorrow. It might be today. But they're still in Florida. Get a hold of them. Join the network. Go to preparingyou.com or hisholychurch.org. Join the network. You work it out yourselves. But anyway, they, they're... They're impatient with the slowness of persuasion of talking to one another and working out and getting people to cooperate. And the example to achieve the great social changes they envision. They're just impatient. They don't want to wait. I'm waiting all the time. I'm waiting upon the Lord to open up your hearts, but I'm waiting for you to let your hearts be open. They are anxious to use the power of the state to achieve their ends and confident in their ability to do so fairly and honestly and righteously. But the self-righteousness because you're going to implement the law and the rule of force to bring about the changes you want. And you have to justify this in your mind and that's what you know makes the nation a sociopath. Yet, Concentrated power is not rendered harmless by the good intentions of those who create it. Concentrated power. This is Milton Friedman. who said, power corrupts. They concentrated power in Saul and they corrupted Saul. They concentrated power in David. They corrupted David. They wanted to concentrate power in Gideon and in John the Baptist and in Jesus. But they wanted to give you the power. But you can't wield that power unless you are willing to wield it righteously, responsibly. So when you do that, you may find that you're no longer sitting in darkness. You may find that the light begins to show you things that I can't even tell you of and explain to you. So anyway, with that in mind, one of the first rules of Jordan Peterson... And we're over halfway through the show, so I gotta get going on this, cause there's 12 of them. Despise, despise not thy fathers. That, that's what he, basically what he's saying. Despise not the institutions of your generations before. I don't despise the Constitution. I know it's missing those four elements that is required for a Constitution according to the Bible. So I know it's not a biblical document despite what people want to believe. I know that's the truth because you can read it right in there. It says this is what you, this is the agreement you make if you want to have somebody who can exercise authority. You know, a chief executive officer. He can't do this, 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 this. We cover it in the book. The co- contracts, Covenants, and Constitution. We've covered in articles. You don't have to buy the book. The book is free online if you want to read it online. Contracts, Covenants, and Constitution, HisHolyChurch.org. You can look for it at Preparing You, although I don't have the PDF at Preparing You. I have a lot of the articles there. But that's up to you. We We make it available for free, but I can't read it for you. I wrote it for you. 
But I can't read it for you. You have to do your own study. He says, stable and predictable social structures of society and the individual health and well-being that they may offer should not be just thrown out. Repenting and seeking the kingdom of God is not overthrowing the existing government, which is why Jesus said, be friends with the unrighteous mammon. That, that's part of the social structure. The unrighteous mammon was the social welfare set up by Herod, set up by, you know, uh, Augustus Caesar, Tiberius, Claudia, or Claudius, as you would say in the, in the subjective case. And, uh, yeah, it was, it was those systems of sacrifice that was making the word of God to none effect and bringing the people closer and closer to tyranny and bondage, which we see unfolding in the history of Rome and the history of Judea. Christ came along and gave people the option, and that's what the church should be doing, is giving them the option of going the other way, which is not according to the rule of force, but the rule of charity and the rule of love. And creating bonds of love and charity and hope through the faith in the way of Christ, in the words of Christ, in the heart of Christ, who came to serve, not to control or rule over you. So when you go to a congregation, you cannot be impatient with the words of persuasion. You have to be patient as Christ was patient. And so don't try to destroy the institutions of your father. Rather, be patient and seek Christ to institute the ways of Christ in your heart and in your mind, writing upon your heart and your mind. There is a problem with the system of men today. You don't get to overthrow that any more than you get to kill Cain. Cain had one system while Abel had another. And Seth seemed to follow Abel. But Cain followed what eventually became the system of Nimrod. He plowed the Adama. Adama meaning the red clay, the, the people. The people, he, he controlled, his system was to control the people. To exercise authority one over the other. Take care of them. Till them, plow them, put them in rows. Using the force of the plow in the hearts of the people. He was impatient. But it leads to death. Of course, Proverbs tells us, Proverbs 1, Proverbs 23, uh, the the prophets all tell us this, and we're doing series on the prophets showing you how this is this has been the primary obstacle to the kingdom of God is thinking that you can force your neighbor to contribute to your welfare, which is a covetous practice and a violation of the Ten Commandments. It's still a violation of the heart of God, and you shouldn't be doing it. So, if you go those ways, you will degenerate society. You, personally, will degenerate. Because you've inherited that, those systems. So, you live with those systems, but you turn around and try to create the alternative. And you have some time to do it. Not much. You had a lot more time 20 years ago. But you weren't doing it. You weren't even listening. But now, when we see tyranny on our doorstep, the enemy is not at the gate. He's within the gate. 
And the enemy is your own selfishness. We have to dispel that selfishness. Get that chaos of that selfishness out of your heart. You do it by ordering your life. What is the primary institution of society? Who wants to destroy the family? That's that's what Black Lives Matter, they say that right out. Uh, that's what socialism does. It breaks down the family. Go to the Soviet Union. Go to places. There are still some strong families in many of these socialist-like countries. But some of them that were extremely socialist are now rolling back, trying to get away from it, because they saw it was destroying their society, destroying their economy, and destroying their families. And a lot of those families are not nearly as strong as they were before. And they do not have the strength to overcome the tyranny that is about to come upon them. They can't even get away with not wearing masks. They're all forced to wear masks and shelter in their homes and all this stuff. And they have no way to stop it. Oh, they step outside the circle from time to time, but they're not changing the course of human events. Because they made other choices long before. In this cause and effect universe, you, you, you can't go back. What else do they want to destroy? In Leviticus 26.15 it says, And if ye shall despise my statutes, or if your soul abhor my judgments, so that... Ye will not do all my commandments, but that ye break my covenant. I also will do this unto you. Now, God's not sitting up there vindictively doing this. Just not personify God in our minds. That's how you create idols in your mind. It's built into the system that God created. As you judge, so shall you be judged. Proverbs 2.11 goes on. My son, despise not the chastening of the Lord, neither be weary of his correction. So we're telling you, you're not supposed to go that way. And go back to Proverbs 1, like I said, and now in Proverbs 23, speak not in the ears of a fool, he will despise the wisdom of my words. What does it say in Proverbs 23, uh, you know, about, oh, about, uh, if you sit and eat with a ruler and you be a man of appetite, put a knife to your throat, for he serves you deceitful meats. These are the benefits. It's, it, he's telling you, be wary of this. Hearken unto thy father and beget thee, and despise not thy mother when she is old. We are where we're at because we made choices. And you can go into the New Testament and you can find in Hebrews 12.5. And ye shall... Have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children. My son, despise not the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. And so the words I'm saying is rebuking the way you've gone, this covetous way. And you can read Peter talking about the covetous way, and eventually he gets to Second Peter 2.10, but chiefly them that walk after the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise, they say, government. But the word there, government, is dominion. You were given dominion individually. You may have, or your parents may have given dominion to other men to exercise authority over you and decide you, that you have to contribute now and you have to contribute to this and you have to contribute that much. And that may be where you're in bondage, entangled again in the yoke of bondage, but the reality is, is the reason you are in that bondage is because your parents and your grandparents wanted benefits 
more than they wanted dominion. They gave up their freedoms. They gave up their right to choose and gave the power to the government to force their neighbor to contribute and now they find themselves under that same authority. Presumptuous are those people who despise that dominion that God granted to the individual. Presumptuous are they, self-willed. They are not afraid to speak evil of dignities. They think the idea of living in a free society is a bad thing. Another thing that he brings up in his item two is that which uh, prospers a man as a society and an individual. Century-old systems and modern that may or may not integrate the human personality revealing that which prospers a man as a society and an individual. It is here the balance between order and chaos is critical. Okay, the society and the individual. Society is simply composed of individuals. If society begins to take away the individual's character, personality, choices, it destroys the individual and will undermine the foundations of society, which is the individual. So societies with a cultural, social system that takes away the choice of the individual, the rights of the individual, the right of the individual to choose, is going to create an imbalance in the forces of order and chaos. And order will be imposed and chaos will follow. You want to allow chaos, that's the right to choose individuals making good and bad choices, So that order may flow into society. If you try to impose order, you will actually create destruction. This this is the foundation of nature, of how things work, how things operate in the universe. The hero of your story needs to be you if you want individuals. See, what they want to do is take your heroes away from you. That's why you see them toppling over statues and... And uh, killing everybody off in Star Wars and making everybody a jerk and and everything. And they're actually, you know, in the new Star Wars that they're trying to impose upon people and people are fighting against it. You know, the the stars are are drug addicts. Your heroes are drug addicts and and, and gay and a rock and they're not, not anything that destroys the family. I'm not not saying anything against gays. They have enough problems of their own. I don't need to impose problems on them. I'm, I'm, I admit it's not natural. I, I admit, it, admit that it comes about because of choices that we've made or other people have made. You know, it comes about from trauma. It comes about from confusion. It comes about from dysphoria. It was it prominent in. Systems that set up these socialist systems where you don't need the family. They were breaking down the family with Social Security. Because when you don't have to take care of your parents anymore, the government will do it. You're breaking down the family. Because the family has to honor their father and their mother. That means take care of. They don't have to take care of them anymore. The government will do it. That's breaking down the family. Public schools breaking down the family. Uh... Common core, breaking down the family. The children 
stop looking to their parents for answers. And with Common Core, they can't look to the parents for answers because the parents can't understand Common Core because that's not the way they learned it. And they're actually forbidden to teach their children the way they learned it. And this was instituted first in Communist China to break down the family so that kids did not look to their parents. They looked to the state. This this is the goal. This is the plan. This It's already implemented. It's already happening. Dumbing down the children so they don't even understand, you know, fallacious reasoning. They, they're ignorant compared. Kids today, graduating from high school, can't pass an eighth grade test that was available back in the 1920s. They, they're not, they, they don't know enough when they graduate from high school to pass those tests. And I know it because I've experimented with them. <laughs> so, I mean, some of them might pass it, but most of them will not. I mean, most of the kids that are graduating from high school today, I can't read at, at a eighth grade level. They they just can't do it. Now there are some that can, but then those who can read, they're reading false histories and everything else. They're under this strong delusion. One of the other rules that Jordan Peterson says, don't hide things in a fog. You want to see things clearly. Don't be ambiguous. Find out the cause and the reality of things. Warns that of the danger of avoiding true information. You want to find what's true. Always what's true. Today, facts don't matter. Emotions, the, the girl says, are better than facts. Because they're closer to the spirit. Why do you think spirits aren't logical? God is logical. God is spirit. If you don't see the logic in God, you don't see God. Or you don't see logic, one or the other. (laughs) Maybe both. But he's saying you want to find the truth about everything. And that's one of the things you see in Jordan Peterson's life. He's still got a lot of things he's got to learn. We all do. But considering where he came from, like Thomas Sowell used to be a communist and Jordan Peterson used to be a socialist, they've come a long way. Jordan, uh, Dave Rubin, total progressive socialist, working for the Turks, young Turks. He's he's changed. I hope he changes more. I hope he learns more. I hope he awakens more. It's a process. I have to be patient with that process. So I don't condemn anybody. I never know who might suddenly awaken and come the other way. That's between them and God. God is what? God is the truth. If you deny the truth, you deny God. You want to know the truth. You want to speak the truth. You want to present the truth in everything and every and to everyone you deal with. Be willing to speak it up, no matter who it may offend. That's what they want you to get away from. Don't say that it offends. If the truth offends you, then you are a lover of the lie. Information that is vital to the rejuvenation of the psyche by avoiding the signals of negative emotions such as pain, anxiety, and fear. That's what it is. The truth becomes a pain. To see the truth about ourselves is the most painful. And that's what Adam and Eve were hiding from. They were hiding in the garden because they didn't want to see the truth about their error, about their mistake, about their delusion. And they didn't admit it. They denied it and tried to blame God. Adam tried to blame God and Eve. 
We're still doing that. Today, I just had this conversation with somebody just like a man. Just like a fallen man. You know, that's that's where we're at. And that creates anxiety because we're always afraid of the pain that might come up. And people can control you. And we'll we'll talk more about that later. But this fog of consciousness, this searing of our consciousness, which is the Bible talks about, this conscience seared, we, we, we flee to the darkness as a coping mechanism. We take a drug. We take alcohol. We watch TV too much to avoid the truth. We're not, it's not helping us cope. It's helping us to avoid coping because coping is painful. But you should embrace the pain. Go to the pain. Forgive the pain. Forgive yourself. If you, if the pain comes from your mistakes, forgive yourself. If the pain comes from other people's mistakes, forgive them. Let it go. Stop judging others. Otherwise, you're going to be judged by your judgment. Number four, the meaning that sustains people is uh, difficult times is not found in the pursuit of happiness as much as in the voluntary acceptance of the responsibility, not only for yourself, but for others. This is very important. The meaning of life is sustained in people when we live our life for others. Isn't that what Christ says? He is one who comes to serve. Lay down his life that he may pick up his life more abundantly. The altars of Abraham were were living altars of sacrifice where people sacrificed upon those altars to take care of the needy of their society and created bonds of loyalty where they could muster an army overnight to defend the land and Abraham and his stupid nephew <laughs> from these marauding armies. But Abraham wouldn't even take any of the spoils. He said, let the the others take the spoils, but I'm not going to take it, not even a buckle. That he was willing to risk his life for righteousness sake. And because of that, he was blessed. You too can be blessed. Number five, do not do what you hate. You know, somebody was asking me, they want to know where to put a well the other day. And we walked all over the field. And I've, you know, I've divined where wells are and been very, very accurate according to the well drilling drillers in their logs. They I told them when they'd hit water and what they'd hit and when they'd hit clay and when they'd hit gravel. And they couldn't believe that. It was like I was looking through the soil. I just told them what I felt. I didn't walk around with rods or anything. I just walked over the ground where they wanted to put the well and I told them what I thought was down there. I can't do that for money. I can't barely do that for myself. Anytime that I will profit from it, that gets in the way. I have to really get still before I do that. (laughs) But anyway, the... He, we, I kept thinking, you don't want a well, but I didn't want to tell him that. But I kept thinking, you don't want a well, and he seemed so in doubt. Well, I put it here, put it there, and he was just going back and forth and everything. And I, but I never told him, you don't want a well. I told him what I could, and the next day he came to me and he says, I decided not to drill a well now. <laughs> he followed my rule without even knowing it. When in doubt, don't. God will show you. You believe it or not, God will show you. But you have to, since you can't fake this, you can't just say magic words and know and put on the armor of God. You have to really set down your arrogance and your self righteousness and start 
realizing, oh my gosh, we screwed up. We've been coveting our neighbor's goods for a hundred years in America. We've been praying to men who exercise authority for our benefits. We have sat down and eat with rulers with an appetite for his dainties and he has served us deceitful meats and now we find ourselves waking up in bondage and the other boot is coming down on the back of our neck and we can't stop it. He's got us running around with masks, going to take these experimental shots and we can't stop it. He's going to take away our food, he's going to take away our children and we can't stop it. God can stop it. You just have to repent. Seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Sit down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands. Start caring about somebody else other than yourself. Stop trying to save yourself or imagine that you're saved. And start caring about others and being willing to lay down your life for others. Which means to show up for others. Not for yourself or the good feeling you want to get or the emotional experience you want to get. Number six... Dangers of ascribing complex social problems to single social variables such as sex, class, or power. This is all intersectionality and that sort of thing. It's just nonsense. You have to get away from that. We're going to run out of time. We're not going to get any farther than seven or eight. Eight is, you know, make one room beautiful. Now that, it's, it's the aesthetic appearance. Don't try to change the whole world. I, we probably need this conversation with my son who's been dealing with a lot of the drama in the world. He's out there doing battle with dragons. Yeah, there's real dragons too, not just these imaginary ones of government. But, uh you know, it's overwhelming at times. Don't try to change it all. Make one room beautiful. Do right by what's before you. Speak the truth to what is before you. Stand the ground. Let God fight the battle. It's like the flood of the pharaohs when he tried to follow after the Israelites. They just had to go where God told them to go. And God would destroy those enemies behind them. He cannot do it himself. And and we need reminding of that from time to time. Well, we got uh, cut off in the uh, show just in the last few minutes, and I wasn't going to quite make it to the end anyway of these uh, 12 more rules. And these are just guidelines that come out of a clinical psychologist's mind who actually has done a journey through his own life and changing, and and these are his observations. But how do they fit into the gospel? I'm going to actually add some recording that didn't go out on the original broadcast here. And so we'll kind of get to these 12 rules. And the last one that we kind of mentioned was this, uh, make one room beautiful. Now, so I'm sure he has a great deal of dialogue and I haven't read the book yet. But what is he talking about? It's uh, instead of trying to make this good and this good and this good and this good and fix this and fix that, you know, focus on fixing one thing. Of course, he had this kind in the the original rules, uh, chaos, where you clean up your room. You you get this done. You You accomplish this. Yeah, out here where we are, we have so many different projects and I often hear uh complaints, I don't often hear complaints, but when I hear complaints, sometimes it's like we never get anything done. Uh, well, the reality is when we came here, there was sagebrush <laughs> desert. <laughs> 
And there's a lot of things that have gotten done. I built homes for people. I built barns. I built shops. I, I built all the stuff that's here. We built stuff out there. Miles and miles of fence and and uh, raised six kids. So we got something done. But the reality is there is a certain satisfaction that comes when you get one thing done and one thing completed. And that's a good habit to have. You won't get everything completed unless you don't start much. But this idea of make one room beautiful. Let's see if we can translate that over into the kingdom of God. What are we supposed to do? We're supposed to love our neighbor as ourselves. Well, I'll bet you you got some neighbors that are not as easy to love as other neighbors. Just a guess. Educated guess. What about forgiveness? That's another thing we're supposed to do. Can you focus on forgiving somebody? Well, obviously, it'd be really good to start with your family. You probably have some siblings that have stepped on your toes. I I know siblings in other families that just cannot seem to forgive and forget. Uh, They're still carrying grudges around from high school, and they're gray-haired people today. They have to, you know, you know who it is that you haven't forgiven. Focus on forgiving that person. In order to do that, we'll have to go to step nine. But those are kinds of projects you can work on, kind of focus on. Can you be kind to somebody particular? Take one of the things, you know, we've had dogs over the years. They're border collies. They're working dogs. We don't have too many pet dogs or anything like that. But we, they're also pets. But the reality is they're working dogs. And we've had some that have not been very good. And we kept them anyway. And, you know, we we dealt with them and their weaknesses and their foibles and tried to improve them, make them better border collies and more efficient. That's an example. But you do it with a lot of different things in your life that you try to Kind of focus on that one project and see if you could take it from one point to another point. I don't know if you ever take it to to a finish. But uh, you start applying that in a lot of things. If you, if you have, especially if you have this feeling that you're not getting anything done or you feel the depression that comes from not getting anything done. Now, we've talked about depression many times before. A lot of the people that we know that have problem with depression also have a problem with doing things for other people. They don't do them for other people. They're complaining about other people. They're complaining about this. They're complaining about that. But they, they're not living their life for other people. They neglect even their own family and their neighbor. The more you do for other people out of the kindness of Christ's heart, the less you will have trouble with depression, even if you are prone to depression. Now, there's a lot of things that Jordan Peterson has a lot of problems with depression in his family. That's a prone thing that is passed from generation to generation. It's not just genetically inherited, but it, you know, genes are often the carrier of certain personality traits. The reality, I believe that you can overcome those personality traits. You know, the sins of the father visited upon the sons for seven generations. Visited, not condemned. If the more you overcome 
this judgment and depression of uh, that is plaguing you, and we're going to get to how to do that, the less likely you will pass it on to the next generation. And again, it goes back to forgiveness. Forgiveness is one of the key. Sacrifice is one of the keys. Sacrificing for others with no hope of return is is another. And I think a great deal of the life that uh, Jordan Peterson has been thrust into is put him into a position where he has to sacrifice a lot of things for other people other than his family. And that comes back and it alleviates, it, it alleviates a great deal of that depression when he sees that he has actually helped other people by taking some of the stands. Some of the stands that should have cost him a great deal could have cost him his job and and all that stuff, and I guess to some degree it has. But the reality is he's also been given a tremendous opportunity of funds coming in to do things, and he wants to do other things for other people. Very important that you do them without hope of reward. Or you can have hope of reward, but it has to be somewhat removed. You can't be doing it to get. And... uh and and the, the example that we see in the biblical context is casting your bread upon the waters in hopes that it comes back to you after many days. And, you know, that's that's a key element. But going back to forgiveness and sacrifice, you want to make it one room beautiful. When you were to sacrifice, and again, sacrifice on the altars of Abraham, sacrifice on the altars of Moses had nothing to do with piles of stone and burning up sheep. Get that out of your head. So what did it have to do with? It had to do with dealing with men you trust. Look out amongst yourselves. Find men you trust. Those become the stones of your altar. Sacrifice to them for the purposes of God, which is the creator and a giver of life. So they're supposed to receive your sacrifice on those living altars to extend life to others give you an example just got off the phone uh someone we know very close to us was hit by a car when they were walking to a crosswalk shattered their knee shattered their elbow ended up in the hospital on their anniversary uh 60 year old woman and uh her husband's undergoing chemotherapy at the same time And just finishing, but now she can't go home and wait on him. She's in the hospital with bones shattered. And uh, they're only letting two visitors in. So her husband came to visit her with their son. Their daughter works in the hospital, in the food service part. She has a degree in diet or something, and she works in the hospital's um, kitchen. And... uh, She wanted to go see her mother. They would not let her see her mother. She works in the hospital. She's probably helping prepare the food her mother's going to eat, but they don't even want to let her bring the food to her mother to say, you know, we're praying for your mom. Doesn't want to see her mother. Doesn't want her mother to see her because you're only allowed to because of COVID. Crazy. You get this crazy world because all those people in the hospital, now some of them are very caring people, I'm sure, but they're mercenaries. They're not there because of Christ. They're there because of a paycheck. 
They follow orders. Just following orders. Only two. Only two. It's crazy. It's insane. But you, if you're going to, you know, how many bills are going to be paid by Faith, Hope, and Charity? And how many bills at the hospital? The hospital was not created by Faith, Hope, and Charity. It was created by force, fear, and fealty by the government. And and by, you know, billing. They've made a business out of disease. You have those choices. Now, I'm not saying those things in themselves are evil. But they're going to produce chaos and what we call insanity. They're not go- going to produce the order that is in your body. Now, just to give you a little hint, these principles literally create a, a frequency in your body. Just like if you're angry and you're upset and you're stewing and you're depressed, this is going to make you unhealthy. Because that creates an atmosphere or a frequency, whatever you want to call it, in your body that's going to affect every cell in your body. Your white blood cells, your red blood cells, everything. It's going to cause your body to malfunction. And so we look at the hospital and we say they're malfunctioning. That They should let that daughter who's already working in the hospital see her mother Social distance if you want. But she should be able to bring the food in on a tray. Somebody has to do it from the kitchen. Let her bring it in from the kitchen. So that she can see her mom for a couple of minutes. Simple. Oh, no, can't do that. We can't break rules. We can't make exceptions because we got our Bible. We got our Bible. It came from the administration. God, oh, great God administrators. Who have decided what is good and evil for us. So now we will not let you visit your mother. We will not let you see her before she goes into surgery. We will deprive you of the community and camaraderie and the love of the family. Because the great God administrator has spoken what is good and what is evil. And we must abide by the word of the God administrator. That's exactly, that's their religion. That's their faith. But if you have faith in the giver of life instead of simply the giver of rules, you will come up with different solutions, different practices. And your body will know the difference. We are setting ourselves up for some seriously bad stuff. So this brings us to number nine. Past experiences whose memory is still laden with pain can be stripped of the horror of that pain and that trauma through voluntary dialogue and reconsideration. What we call self-examination. So number nine is, we'll call it self-examination. Seeing you through the eyes of others requires that you be compassionate to others. You feel their pain. You have, you not only need to feel your pain, which will if you feel it with a loving heart and a forgiving heart and a patient heart, it will bring healing. That pain in your body and your mind will bring healing to your body and to your mind. And seeing that pain is a part of the process of voluntary dialogue and reconsideration and what we call self-examination. To look 
at trauma. Not just what other people did to you and blame them, but what part you may have played in that. Why were you so weak? Why were you so vulnerable? Because that vulnerability is is what they have been cultivating in you, grooming you for for a hundred years in America. And it's why we will not survive the coming Holocaust without the intervention of the Creator Himself. And of course, that's what we're trying to talk to you about is showing you how to bring that grace of the Creator to you. Allow it to come in and protect you. How to put on that full armor of God. You know, I've already put up a couple of pages, like uh, a page on trauma, preparing you. You can go look at that. I have a page up on confess, which is confession, which is all a part of this self-examination and voluntary dialogue and reconsideration, which if you go back to the first rules, one of the things is you had to have, you had to pick your friends, friends that are going to strengthen you and make you, encourage you and, and bring light to your relationships in that hospital, they're bringing darkness. Oh, no, you can't see each other. Oh, you, you can't comfort one another. Oh, you cannot sacrifice for one another. Because the great God administrator has spoken. They have chosen that that is evil to do and no longer good to to give encouragement to somebody about to go into surgery. We we can't allow that. <laughs> so, you see, it, it's, it's really crazy. If you read in Ezra 10.11... Now, therefore, make confession unto the Lord God of your fathers and do his pleasure and separate yourself from the people of the land and from the strange wives, who again were those strange wives. We talked about that so many times before. The wife and mother of the household is the caregiver of the household. Who is the caregiver of your community? Who is that... uh that individual who provides that care and solace in your community. That's the wife of the community. That's the mother of the community. And the church is often considered the mother church. They call it the mother church. Well, if it's the mother church, it must have a daily ministration because the, always it's the character of the mother and the wife who fixes food and and provides the care, and which is an essential part of survival. You know, the husband goes out and you know kills the wildebeest and hauls the the meat back on his back because he can do it better than the woman. But the woman, she does her part in preparing and preserving the food and making it so it's healthy uh, for the family to eat. And together they're a great team. So. Who is the mother? Who is the caregiver of your society? Well, in modern society, it's the government. It's the welfare office. That's the strange wife. The Medicare, Medicaid, Obamacare. Those are your strange wives. Those are the ones who are providing care in the family of your society. You see? That's the metaphor. And these are strange wives because they don't do it out of love. They do it out of mercenary force and and paid by compelled offerings or they prostitute themselves they will they will take care of your mother they will take care of your sister in the hospital 
but you got to pay them. You know, like like a prostitute. Now, I'm not calling all nurses and all doctors prostitutes. They are in the business of profit. And in amongst them, you will find some that have the spirit not far from the kingdom. But if you really want to get closer to the kingdom, you have to have a corbin that draws you near the kingdom. You have to have the corbin of Christ. Right now, all those hospitals, almost every hospital out there is funded partly by the corbin of the Pharisees, by the forced offerings of government. If you don't have the money to pay, they will want to, they'll have somebody to come in, a social worker come in right away and get you on welfare, get you on social security, get you on disability, get you on something so that they will get some of the money from the government that will pay your bill there. That's not the kingdom of God. That's the kingdom of the world. And there are repercussions. There are causes and effects that are going to take a place because you have these strange wives who will care for you for for a price, for money. And some of that money will come by men who exercise authority one over the other and call themselves benefactors. They're not going to pay for your hospital themselves. They're going to take... They're going to borrow money against the future of your children to pay that because they none of your tax dollars go to actually pay for these benefits. Again, we say this before, but I have to remind people because they forget. All of these benefits are borrowed money that has financed them. And the money you pay in in taxes is going to pay the interest. That's the way it works. That's why Social Security has never, ever been solvent. Because there is no division of funds by law. We show this on our page. We show you, we quote the Supreme Court, the gods of Social Security, the ones who decide what is good and evil, what is right and wrong, and the legislatures, the lawmakers, who, who make the rules up, you know, why you went from one and a half percent that you paid into Social Security to now over 14% that you pay into Social Security as self-employed. So, that, that, that process, that's the strange wives. The, the ones who operate by force, that's not the Corbin of Christ, that's the Corbin of the Pharisees. And so we, what I'm doing is linking the metaphor back with what is actually taking place so that you can understand that if you have these strange wives it's going to end badly you have to go back to your first love which is what we talked about Rome in the the broadcast that uh was it the previous broadcast I can't remember which one it was <laughs> no the yeah the that Rome originally was a republic. You were free from things public. Therefore, they took care of all the needy of their society through faith, hope, and charity. They even supplied their army. by When you joined the army, you brought your shield. You brought your sword. You brought your spear. You brought your bow. And you joined the army. If you were really good with a bow, you would join the bowmen. And uh, if you were really good with a spear, you would join the spearmen. And they would teach you how to really be good with the spear or the sling or whatever it is. And then you would practice and learn to fight together. And when you were out on bivouac and you were fighting the, arm, the, the, the enemy, 
Where did the food come from? It came from the tens, hundreds, and thousands in your family, in the hearths, what they call the hearths, which was a network, and the equine. Uh, they, they supplied you. But it was all free will. And, and even just in the last century, and I've pointed this out before, but it just astounds me that they, they, all the ambulances in the war, First World War were horse-drawn wagons. They marked Red Cross on them so that people would know that they were not supposed to shoot at them because it's got wounded in them. But they wanted to go from horse-drawn wagons to mechanized ambulances. And so, of course, what did they do? Tax the people? No. The people took up a collection in England and they bought 2,000 mechanical ambulances and sent them to the front lines and paid the drivers because they needed to, you know, nobody knew how to drive back then because there's hardly any cars. <laughs> so they, they, the driver had to be half mechanic and half driver. And so they not only bought to donations, 2,000 ambulances, but they trained and educated and paid for the drivers. Not the military. The people. Well, they used to fund the whole army that way. You say, oh, we could never go back to that. You're going to go back to that. Whether you like it or not, because everything's going to collapse and fall apart. I mean, really, I'm not going to tell you what's going to happen. You don't deserve to know. Not till you sit down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands. But if you have any insight into history and what's been going on, they're not done with you just because you have masks and you take the vaccination. There's a bigger plan afoot here. <laughs> so anyway, how are you going to know? How Well, you have to get rid of the strange wives and separate yourself from the people of the dirt, of the land. Now, it doesn't mean separate yourself from... Farming, it's it's talking about the people of the soil, the mud people, and the strange wives, and all the people who are about this plowing, like Cain, plowing the land, you know, forcing this order and their strange wives. So you had to separate yourselves and make this confession to the Lord that you should never have gone that way to begin with. And Daniel 9, 4, it says, And I prayed unto the Lord my God and made my confession and said, O Lord, the great and dreadful God, keeping the covenant uh, and mercy to them that love him and to them that keep his commandments. Now, that's in Daniel. But you see the same thing in John in the New Testament. Those who love me keep my commandments. It doesn't say, those who love me will think about keeping my commandments, but I'll save them anyway because they told me that they believe in me. They said with their lips that they believe in me. Jesus says, not those who say, but those who do. But if you say, oh, well, he was in the Old Testament then because it wasn't the New Testament. Well, in John, they're telling us, in the epistles, they tell us the same thing. You just don't want to believe it. Nobody changed that. You still have to keep the commandments. And if you're not keeping the commandments, that's evidence that you have need of repentance. Even Romans 10.10. 10, For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth 
confession is made unto salvation. You kind of have to admit that you've been living by the benefits of others. You have been engaged in covetous practices. You have been made merchandise. You're back in the bondage of Egypt. It's worse with you than the bondage of Egypt because then you only owe 20% of your labor to the government. Now you owe far more. And your children are cursed by your covetous practices because now they're in debt, trillions and trillions of dollars more in debt just in the last year. And this is all because you didn't see this coming? Well, of course you didn't because your preachers are brutish pastors. They are liars. They are the prophets of the beast. They have led you into bondage. Because they are not leading you in the gospel of Christ. They are tickling your ears. They want to be your comforter. You know, when you're on your deathbed, they want to comfort you and tell you that you're saved. And then you will get this good feeling and they will get this good feeling because they comforted you. But they're ear ticklers. The gospel includes some pain for almost everyone who hears it. But that pain... If you accept it and confess it and admit you've been going the wrong way, can now have a healing effect. Now, does it mean that you have to go out and now earn salvation by what you do? No. That's absolutely true. You do not earn salvation by what you do. But if you're not doing what is righteous, that's evidence you have not really repented. Matthew seven twenty three, And then will I profess unto them I never Knew you. Profess, confess, they're actually similar terms. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Because that same word that we see there translated profess in 723 of Matthew. If we go to Matthew 1032, we'll see. Whosoever therefore shall confess me before men, him will I confess also before my Father, which is in heaven. That confessing of Christ is doing what Christ said. If you are saying you believe in Christ, but you're doing the opposite of what Christ said, doing contrary to the decrees of Jesus, then you are blaspheming the name of Jesus. You're taking the name of Jesus in vain. Because you're saying, oh, I'm a Christian, but I get to covet my neighbor's goods because I believe in Jesus and he has done away with sin. So I can't even sin. I can do bad things and they're not counted as sin because I believe in Jesus. You're under a strong delusion, folks, if you think that's true. If you're still sinning. You don't really believe in Jesus because if you loved him, you would keep his commandments. If you're not keeping his commandments, you don't really love him. You love an image of Jesus that your pastors or you yourself have created in your mind that is a fake Jesus. A false Jesus. And you have done this because you have accepted a false gospel. People who say, I am of Christ, and they are not. They are workers of iniquity and justify you in being a worker of iniquity, which is why destruction is coming upon you, just as it says in the New and Old Testament it would. 
Luke 12:8. Also I say unto you, whosoever shall confess me before men, him shall the Son of Man also confess. So that's the same basic thing that we saw in, in the previous quote. Let's look at John 1:20. And he confessed and denied not, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And of course, the person who's speaking there is John the Baptist, who is telling them that uh, that he was not the Christ. And of course, them asking those kinds of questions, wanting to know if he was the Christ, because he, who would be the Christ, and what what does that mean to even be the Christ? Is are you the anointed? There was no king on the throne. In Jerusalem, there had not been a king on the throne in Jerusalem since the death of Herod. There could not come a king upon the throne in Jerusalem because Christ was born that king. Even after Christ, when somebody else tried to claim that crown, that right to be that throne uh, holder, his belly ruptures open and, you know, worms come out and all that kind of stuff that we see in the thing because Christ is still on that throne. I'm not on that throne. We're, we're not to exercise authority. We weren't given that kind of kingdom. We were given a kingdom to be servants in. I appoint unto you a kingdom, but you are not to be like the rulers of the Gentiles who exercise authority one over the other. But Christ did give us some commands and did give them some commands. One command he gave them was that they were to make the people sit down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands so that a daily ministration could be established and they could receive the loaves and fishes by the grace of God. And the real miracle there is that the people began to share amongst them. And they shared so much there was a surplus for the ministers of God's kingdom who would would eventually be appointed the kingdom because he said I was going to take the kingdom from those guys and appoint it to my little flock to be servants, not to be rulers. And certainly not to crown other men to be rulers over you. Jesus' mission was to set the captive free, not bring the people back into the bondage of Egypt. Christ's church did not bring you back into the bondage of Egypt. You came back to the bondage of Egypt through your own covetous practices and were entangled again in that yoke of bondage. And now you feel depression. Now you feel despair. All this would go away if you turned your back on socialism completely and turned your eyes and your heart towards Christ, the real Christ, the real anointed king who still sits upon that throne. But he couldn't stay there and sit on that throne and you be wakened to the Holy Spirit that giveth life throughout creation. Because you have to confess where you have failed. You know, that was one of the things Jordan Peterson, he wanted to be a socialist, almost a communist. And then he 
finally confessed openly in conversation with others and he realized he didn't even like these socialists. And he could see a sort of a degeneration in them that he thought was not good. And he walked away from that. Yet, still, in Canada's heavily socialized system. And even though he saw that, you know, I mean, he was even hoping, and I, I could tell there's some thoughts in the back of his mind. Are these vaccines really vaccines? He's wondering. I don't know how much he knows. But he's hoping that they can get back to normal. You do not want to get back to normal, Jordan, or anybody else. Normal is what made you so vulnerable to this to begin with. You want to get back to righteousness. Now, used to be in Canada that people were a lot more righteous than they are today because it was a lot less socialist. They used to take care of a lot of the needy of their society with no forced taxation, no men who call themselves benefactors but exercise authority. We certainly were doing it in the U.S. I know they did it to some degree or another. I don't know how much. I mean, there was differences in the way Canada settled the West. You know, the Redcoats came out first. It wasn't, there were settlers who came out, but they, they brought their order out ahead of them. We came out and we had to find the order in our own hearts. And people took care of one another. Do not think you understand the wild, wild west of America by watching cowboy shows. Because they're not telling you the truth. <laughs> I know real cowboys. Used to work with them and feed with them. I mean, cowboys who rode weren't even born in the U.S. They were born in the Indian territories. <laughs> and they rode to Oregon on horseback. <laughs> and I worked with them daily. They passed away now. But, uh, yeah, cowboys wasn't like what you see on TV. But anyway, let's see if we can, we only got to nine and we're kind of creeping along because it's really important, this dialogue. And see, that's why evil, the left, wants to end dialogue. You know, they don't, I mean, the guy is trying to shout you down and end dialogue. They don't know what they're doing. But there's a spirit dwelling in them that knows they cannot have dialogue. You cannot have self-examination. You can have delusion. But you cannot have truth. Truth is the enemy of evil. And see, that this is the difference between evil is the absence of good. But the absence of good in the hearts of men brings about a force of evil. And that's what we see being forced upon the world today is this forces of evil coming in upon our society. Because they're actually, it is, they are shining their evil into our communities, into our schools, into the minds of our children. Because entities are entertaining darkness. They are dwelling in darkness. And they want to spread that darkness in the minds of others. And nothing brings darkness to your mind more than unconfessed trauma. Trauma brings shadows of darkness in our hearts and our mind. Confession brings a light where there was darkness. And puts on the full armor against evil and makes evil avoid you. They can't even see you in the room. They can't even look at you if you really bring light into the room. We'll get into that at another time. I'm not going to go through I have a lot of other quotes here that we can go into about confession 
And I have a whole article up, so you can go read that whole article on confession. And I may even have an audio with it. I can't remember. I will finish with uh, 1 John Epistle, first chapter, verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's actually actually talking about a spiritual and psychological process. That if you admit your sins in confessions, you know, the, the AA guys, they know this. That you have to go, if you wrong people, you have to go to them and say, you're sorry. You've done two things. You've confessed it out loud that you wronged them and you've put some sort of action into place that confronts that openly with that person. Even if that person were dead, then you have to do something for somebody else. And this is this is how you make that room of forgiveness beautiful. You put that forgiveness into practice. The same as you put the covetous practice into practice. Your covetousness into practice by desiring benefits at the expense of your neighbor. You didn't didn't hear the door of your neighbor being kicked in because of failure to pay taxes to support your habit of receiving benefits at the expense of others. But your wantonness was behind the force of that boat that ended up on the neck of your neighbor. And you have to confess that and become a part of the solution, which is not the strange wives of covetousness and, and prostitution, but the loving wives of sacrifice. You know, what's the, the, the old song of about mothers that, you know, she all the time she stayed up at night, all the time she cleaned your clothes and made your lunch and, and uh, provided all these things for you. She's not going to bill you. She she did that out of love. You have to start. We have to start taking care of one another out of love instead of these social welfare systems based on force, fear, and violence. Because we're destroying our society. You can't just teach this in school. You have to put it into action. You can't just say you believe in charity. You can't just sit in a pew and say, I love the person next to me. But during Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, you're sending men to his house who exercise authority and will force him to contribute to your Obamacare, your welfare, your national insurance, and etc. I mean, you don't see the dagger in the back of your neighbor when you implement such institutions. But it, it will degenerate you as a society, and make it so you cannot stop the despot. You will actually usher him in. Polybius said this 2,200 years ago. <laughs> but you haven't studied Polybius much. So anyway, in Second John uh, chapter 1, verse 7, he had said, For many deceivers are entered into the world who confess... Not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh. This is a deceiver and the Antichrist. So people think, wow, we just confess that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh. Jesus the anointing. Well, what did Jesus do? He came to serve. You're saying he came. The devil knows he came. 
You're still doing the stuff that the devil does, the adversary of Christ. You're the adversary of Christ because you're not sitting down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands and loving one another. We have our work cut out for us. But anyway, number 10 on uh, this, getting closer to 12 here, importance of explicit negotiations. This is what he, he talks about. To maintain... This goodwill, this mutual regard, this heartfelt cooperation, without which no true love can be sustained, you have to be explicit in your negotiations. You have to be willing to talk with one another. Certainly, husband and wife, fathers and sons, fathers and daughters, mothers and sons and daughters, everybody, family should, we've always talked in front of our children as if we wanted them to become adults. When we wanted to talk about something important, we didn't send them away. I mean, there's obviously some conversations you're not going to have in front of your children at different ages. But very early on, we wanted our children present when we talked about adult things. I mean, politics, religion, anger, resentment, people who hate us, people we have to forgive... We talk about these things in front of them. You know, and now if you're going to just talk about how you hate this person, you're not ever going to forgive them, and you want to talk about that in front of your children, they're going to learn to hate and not forgive too. But if you're going to have these heartfelt conversations, boy, that person was making me mad. They're getting to be very hard to forgive. But I know that as is essential, otherwise I will carry that burden with me like Marley's chains. You know, that conversation you need to have in front of your children so that they see that. You know, if you if you want to talk dirty in front of your kids, <laughs> talk evil in front of your kids, that's another whole thing, another whole way of approaching things. So, anyway, um, that explicit negotiation. People, I know a lot of people, that, uh, I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to talk about it. No, you need to talk about it. You need to communicate it. You need to, you know, this is what teasing is about. Teasing is, is what a comedian does. When he talks about real life trauma in a way that's kind of funny. Because it's not, that trauma's not really happening now. I mean, like, Ronald Reagan, they did a recording of what Ronald Reagan was big for telling jokes all of a sudden. And there was a message a lot of times in the joke, and he was talking about Russian jokes that Russians tell amongst themselves. And he told one of them to Gorbachev. And it was one where a Russian and an American were talking. And the American said, in my country, I can walk right into the White House Pound on my fist on the desk and tell him, I do not like the way you're running the country. And the Russian says, I can do that thing too. And he says, really? He says, I can go right into the Kremlin and go right up to Gorbachev's desk, pound on the desk and say, I don't like the way Ronald Reagan is running his country. <laughs> and of course, Gorbachev thought that was funny. But he says it's good to have that sense of humor. And the fact that you could even tell that joke in Russia was showing that there was some kind of progress. But if we're only going to get Russia up to where America is today, that ain't good enough. We got to get America up to righteousness and then hope that Russia comes there too. 
But humor allows us sometimes to talk about things that are otherwise very painful. So that's where teasing, that's where affection comes in. So that you get to be willing to expose these traumas because you have built something else called trust. That you know they're doing it because they want better for you. They don't want to discomfort you and make you feel good like the pastor who's just going to make you feel good about the fact that you are not really saved. But you have imagined that you're saved and you want to go to your deathbed feeling comfortable. If you want to go to your deathbed, go to your deathbed with forgiveness and repentance. Because that will get you a lot farther than the comfort of your pastor. Who just wants to feel good because he made you feel good. He's an ear tickler. He's not a truth teller. And the ministers of Christ are not ear ticklers. They're truth tellers. And sometimes the truth hurts. But it's a pain that heals. I know pastors who have taken care of elderly who were on their deathbed and they got up out of the deathbed. And it wasn't because he was tickling their ears. He was, they were telling them what he, they needed to hear. And because the Holy Spirit came in with them and was even without explicitly, which although this, when you say explicit, doesn't mean being blunt all the time. It means bringing, from our point of view, the importance of bringing the Holy Spirit in. That's one of the advice that I gave to my son who deals with a lot of corruption. He's up there in the midst of the halls of, you know, government and dealing with it all the time. And everybody comes to him and says, fix this and fix that. I can't fix it. Governments aren't going to change till you change. And I said, you just be the light in the room. You're not going to fix anything. Let God fix it. You just come in and be the light in the room. He's, he's done that at the beginning, but it, it's it's quite a chore to to do this battle on the front lines because he's he's fighting dragons of a kind there too. But anyway, number eleven because we're getting down towards the end and we're running out of time describes the world of human experience through common psychological responses. Do not let yourself become resentment, deceitful, and uh, arrogant. Now, so these are my notes. I can't remember exactly what he talks about treading, on, or at least I have in here, treading on my foot territory. And this goes back to that make one room beautiful. Well, how do you make it beautiful? You put curtains of forgiveness all around. <laughs> you, you paint daisies of love. <laughs> Whatever makes it. Uh, and service. And this is how to test whether you have really forgiven somebody. Is do something for them. That you don't need to do for them. Even do it where they don't know you did it. I mean, I'm not making all kinds of rules up. But the point is, is that if you can't, you know, I forgive them, but I don't ever want to see them again. <laughs> Why? I don't ever want to darken my door again, but I forgive them. No, you haven't forgiven them. It wouldn't matter. You, that was, you would add to the Good Samaritan story that the guy who got beat up by the robbers had cheated the Good Samaritan, <laughs> you know, six months earlier. And the Good Samaritan recognized who it was and he bandaged him up anyway. There you go. Now you've made a beautiful room. 
So anyway, these messages of Christ, this is the psychology of the gospel. And the reality is, once you start understanding what the Old Testament was really telling us, all the prophets were really telling us, which is why we're going through the prophets, they were giving you the same message from the beginning. Like I said, Moses said, love thy neighbor as thyself. And the altars they built were social welfare systems based on charity, which does not come unless you forgive. You will not pay into an altar that is helping people that you're still mad at and have not forgiven. And so we're having this conversation now, this explicit conversation. I'm not tickling your ears. I'm challenging your hearts. If someone treads on your foot, that's an opportunity. If somebody cheats you, that's an opportunity for forgiveness. doesn't mean you can't bring it to their attention with explicitness that you're a thief and a cheater. As a matter of fact, you not only may have to do it with them, you may have to do it with others and expose them so that they are not so easily making other people vulnerable. But now we come to number 12. Be grateful. It says, confirms the essential importance of thankfulness. The word thanksgiving really means be thankful for the opportunity of giving. Thankful for the opportunity of sacrifice. Thankful for the opportunity to forgive. That's what the Eucharist of Christ is really holding and, and curtailing. So, if you read our article on the Essenes, and we have an article on the Eucharist also at Preparing You, and an article on religion and rituals and ceremonies and communion. <laughs> so you begin to understand this idea of sacrificing for others, even others you don't know. If you only love those who love you, then this is what Christ said. <laughs> what benefit do you have? But to love those who you don't even know. To love those that have made themselves your enemy. That is power. That's how you cast out demons. That's how you cast out the demons who want to dwell in you. That's how you cast out darkness in you. That's how you open up the curtains in the great expectation. You know, that was, that's the scene is that they pull down Miss Havisham's curtains and let the light in. And that's what, that's what you have to do after you got order to keep that light coming in. Otherwise your order can Turned to evil. Nobody was more orderly than the Nazis. And nobody is more fond of order than the New World Order and the Great Reset. You have to reset your heart from the bottom up by creating a network of charity from the bottom up. In order to do that, you have to sit down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands. And that up that you see in Jordan Peterson, the hierarchy of righteousness, not a hierarchy of self-righteousness. That's how you get the Nazis coming down and the Great Reset coming down and the socialists coming down. But the hierarchy of righteousness, which is sacrifice and forgiveness. So, the Essenes were known, they were respected more than the, by the, by the Romans, more than the Pharisees, who were men of order. You had all these rules, you had to do it this way and that way, and wear this hat and this clothes and all those kinds of things. They were just, they were fascinated with order. 
but not righteousness. But righteousness will permeate order in the very cells of your being. And so what they did, why did they... The Romans' cross-examination was kind of more like the rubber hose things. They... If they thought you were a part of a crime, they would torture you to you until you confessed. That's that was their form of interrogation. These were rugged guys, and this is the way it, Apaches would be the same way. They they want to see if you really were dedicated to what you believed, and they would torture you. And they thought that that was a good thing. If you held up in torture, you would still probably die at their hands, but they would treat you with respect. Because you withstood the torture. And the Romans were kind of that way. And one of the things that they noted, and we see this in Josephus, is that when the Essenes were tortured sometimes, they blessed their torture. They were grateful for the torture. They were grateful for the pain. Because they embraced the pain. They knew there would be healing in the pain. This is one of the reasons why they were throwing the Christians to the lions, and so to speak. is because they did see in some Christians that they were spared. That the, that the lions didn't want to eat them. They didn't sense the fear in them. And they were fascinated with that. And so they they thought of testing the Christians. Testing their faith. And occasionally, people would be spared. The number of people, the Christians, a lot of them were persecuted. And we get the idea that they're all being persecuted all the time. There certainly was persecution. But it was many people who were not Christians that came to their defense. Many, many, many times. Came to their aid many, many times. Because they respected the Christians. Because they were people that were grateful for even hardships. And this is going to be very, come very important in the days to come. But anyway, we'll end this with uh, my usual see you on the network. Join us at hisholychurch.org and preparingyou.com. Until then, peace on your house and may God be with you. God bless. You have been listening to The Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. For more information on the educational ministry provided by His Holy Church and Brother Gregory, including services, counseling, lectures, books, and other audio materials, please write to His Church at Summer Lake, Box 10, Summer Lake, Oregon, 97640. You can also find us on the web at www.hisholychurch.net.